Workplace Sexual Violence, the After Me Too movement. Jen, what's that about? Well, basically, After Me Too was started when Harvey Weinstein was first uh, arrested for some of his many, many, many crimes. And I, like many other women, especially in the entertainment industry, I think that day felt so much rage. And it, for me, anyway, it was like a lot of my shame took the, the shame that I had felt previously for things that had been done to me. I now felt that that had been done, you know, by a perpetrator to me, and it felt like the crime that it was. So it was a bit of vindication. It was a lot of rage. And a lot of us women in the Toronto industry were feeling the same thing. And one woman named Mia Kirshner, well-known actress, and she herself had been assaulted by Harvey Weinstein and wrote about it for the Globe and Mail, and still nothing was done about it at the time. So Mia was... Uh, um, Mia was approached by Robin uh, Doolittle from the Globe and Mail to retell her story. And when she did, a bunch of us kind of congregated on Mia and said, okay, what do we do? And that's how After Me Too was formed, is we all had put up our hands saying, yes, Me Too, this has happened to me. I have been assaulted or harassed or something. And now what do we do with that? Because it's not enough to just see how many women have been hurt. We have to make sure it doesn't happen again and again and again. Thank you for that. We're going to get into that more. So, um, let's, let's, let's start off with, um, all about you, Jennifer Gibson. Gibson. Yes. Tell me, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, it all started. No, um, I am an actor. Uh, that's always been my, uh, the earliest dream I had was to be an actor. So I'm an actor. I can say that proudly. I'm a mom. That's uh, another huge, huge part of my life, obviously. And a wife and a filmmaker. And I'm happy to be here with you. I'm so happy that you're here because, you know, as someone who is not at all in the film and industry media world, I've always like had these questions of like, oh, okay, what is it like to be an actor? You know, and in one of our conversations, you're like, well, when, when, like, if I had a real job, I'm like, you do have a real job. Like you were quite successful. Like you and your husband have made over 60 movies together. Yes. A, a lot of the movies that I, that if you say we've produced, I have to give credit where credit's due. Rob has produced uh, most of those. Right. I have, uh, I actually started producing and directing because of After Me Too when I uh, found out that workplace sexual violence is hugely um, eradicated or not eradicated, but um, combated by having females in positions of power and especially directing and producing in my industry. I had only ever been an actor up until that point and never wanted to do anything else. That was my passion. I was happy enough to be able to act and get paid for it. But when I found that out, I realized, okay, if it means that other newer female actors or actresses coming up might not have it as tough as women my age did, then I better get to work. So wow. that's when I started. And, and I love it so much now. I, and also as a feminist to really be able to use my voice, I feel finally is uh, a great feeling. Well, it's a journey, right? Like, and then what you had just mentioned earlier that, oh, I'm not the only one. Yeah. And how do I prevent this from happening to other people is pretty powerful. Or even when someone does come out and nothing happens. Right. And that's very, I would think, deflating. Well, that's what we were used to up until Harvey Weinstein. And so whether you were in denial, like I was thinking that, uh, oh, everything was my fault and what a stupid person I was. Why did I do that? Why did I go there? Why did I, why, you know, blaming myself? Yeah. So that was a lot of it for me, but I'm sorry, can you ask? No, I mean, like with regards to the after Me Too movement and the recognition, like, 
wait, I need to change. Right, right. And and the fact that people weren't believed a lot of times before. So I think that had a lot, um, it imprinted a lot on me because I saw other women come forward about things and then just went away. Yeah. Nobody ever knew what happened. It must have been an NDA, I realize now. But all of a sudden it was just gone. The problem wasn't there. Nobody talked about it. So yeah, it does start to make you think that I must have imagined it. I must be crazy. Yeah. So yeah, the recognition to finally, once Harvey Weinstein, the big whale was taken down, that I think that's what gave women everywhere the courage. Yeah. So um, I really appreciate you talking about the After Me Too movement. And you talked about how after that happened, you were like, okay, I want to become a producer. Can you talk a little bit about those dynamics? Like for someone who is an outsider, what do those dynamics look like, right? Like apart from a producer, I imagine a person who, you know, and I imagine someone who's like putting all the different pieces together, but I don't know the dynamics of that. Yeah, in such a creative industry, well, I'm only on the creative side, I should say, first and foremost, because there's an entire other industry side, which is all finance and legal mm -hmm. and, you know, accounting, all of that. Having made this independent film now, I got a lot more of that than I ever thought I would mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. frankly ever wanted to, yeah. but I sure learned a lot. Um, but from the creative side, there's so many different things, you know. My first job, oh, that's okay. Yes, I did uh, produce some films first when I decided to move more into filmmaking. Um, but I actually got to direct my first film because I took a script that I'd been offered as an actor and it was pretty good script. It was all right. It was a typical Hallmark, you know, movie, boy, girl needs boy in time for Christmas or Christmas is falls apart, you know? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I thought, okay, fine, there's that story. But this one also had to do with uh, a chalet being double booked by both a single handsome man and a female who was bringing her mom and daughter, teenage okay. daughter. And I thought, no, I like the dynamics of the female, the three generations of females, because that's interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So I took it to a production company and said, if I can get the script in order to sell it, will you let me direct it? And they said, yes. And I worked with the writers. They We got a great script together, if I do say so myself. And then we made The Christmas Chalet. Okay. So and now I directed. So we can this up. Yes, The Christmas Chalet. That was uh, on Up TV. Okay. But I'm sure it's available streaming. Okay. And then, yeah, I produced more films just trying to, in those cases, when I say I produced, that was more getting them developed. Okay. So, you know, working on the script, making sure the script is as good as it can be within the parameters that you have to work in, in the movie of the week world, you yeah. know, um, I always have a darker sense than some of the Hallmark movies, but whenever I try to interject any of that, I realize that's not the audience. So right, right, uh, right. <laughs> you give it that edge. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really that welcome. Yeah. I found out their favorite thing about the movies is mostly the decorations. So I'm like, okay, I'll let the decorations speak for themselves. And <laughs> <laughs> Well, but you have found the independence because you and Rob have filmed produced and directed your own film. Can you speak to this awesome project? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I am too, Lee. I, uh, this, is the, this is the one that you, okay, that I have worked over 20 years wow. for an overnight sort of success because it did all come together in one year, which almost never happens, especially in independent film. We literally got a script that was written by a queer writer in Los Angeles, Ali Jennings, such a big fan. And Ali and I had been working together on a queer rom-com and she was writing it for me to direct it. And that one had a home for a minute, but then went away and Ali had another script and we read and we just fell in love with and we were able to find a private investor and raise the money and film it all within one year. And that almost never happens. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, Rob and I laughed that it took only 25 plus years to be to have one overnight little and we hope it's a success. Please watch. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording was how important as an independent filmmaker to have those tax credits 
Mm-hmm. Can you speak to some of those dynamics, like for anyone who's listening, who might have an impact on that? Like with the film industry, we know that in Toronto, you know, Toronto of the North or Hollywood of the North, um, incentives in other parts of the country, Saskatchewan, BC. What is that dynamic like? Well, for independent filmmakers, a tax credit, even, you know, 2% or something can be a massive, massive help to your budget. Because if your budget is $1 million that you've been able to raise, that's another 200. Well, no, sorry. Don't make me do math. That's embarrassing. Um, But it's... (laughs) I was going to give a note that wasn't that right. but it's a big deal to us. Like, we need any bit of the money that we can get. And we had originally looked at shooting this film in Saskatchewan because they have brought back tax credits to Saskatchewan because when they took them away, they lost all filming. And we wanted to bring this film to shoot there. But in the time that we needed to shoot it, because snow comes a lot earlier in Saskatchewan, they had their one crew was supposed to be on a shoot in British Columbia. Oh, okay. And so if there was no crew going to be there for us to shoot, we couldn't do it. Yeah. And I, you know, we did try and, and work together and, and make something work there. But if, the, if we couldn't get the tax credits and we couldn't get the crew that we needed, cause that's the other thing. If you have the crew, you really are in a position to incentivize people to get to your province. Right. And if you have a crew that's sitting there not working, yeah. I mean, it was no, it wasn't a good day for me when I pulled the project because I knew that there were people, well, at the time I thought they were going to go work in BC, but that project went down as well. So unfortunately, you know, it does make a really big impact on filming, especially for us little guys, which the nice thing about the little guys is we're not such a huge imprint on a neighborhood. You know, if we come in, it's not like, uh, you know, uh, shutting down streets. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have the handmaid's budget. So, um, uh, so it really does help us any tax credit. That's one of the reasons why we film in Hamilton and not in the GTA, okay. because if you film outside the GTA, you get a better tax credit. Okay. And certain municipalities now are also offering grants and they may reinvest in your film. And that makes other areas of Ontario very attractive to producers like me. So I guess it's really a great for like the, the, the whoever is sponsoring it locally, it helps build their sort of I don't know, like social capital or like it it helps generate revenue streams into their community because you would get local catering. You would get like, you know what I mean? Like the the thing is we always, uh, we travel with a catering unit that comes and gives us food, but we get, we're so spoiled and we get sick of it. So we're always happier to go across the street or wherever we're shooting. So people spend a lot of money from film sets. And I know I'm totally biased because I make my living in this business, but I do find that, um, yeah, it's a great way for especially smaller communities. And we're right now, well, we've been trying to work um, for the past while on getting some sort of a mentorship going for um, underrepresented people in the entertainment business. Wow. Yeah. We just, we've got a plan that would, uh, you know, if we could get tax credits, et cetera, we could be having people apprentice with us and, you know, after doing two or three movies and they could be in at a, at their regular rate, you know, union jobs, et cetera. So, so when you say the, we, is there a lobby group or who is the, we, uh, the, we is really me, Rob <laughs> and our friends that sit around and talk about how we should be changing the world. Uh, but actually we are working, uh, Shamir Moore and, um, his brother yeah yeah it'll come it's okay um yes rob has been working with their organization and they do the black excellence awards yeah um trying to find a way we just we really think their organization they have a mentorship program and we're just trying to grow it as we can i love it yeah 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 yeah. i mean like every thing that you do has an equity-based lens on it. Like even this passion, like, so you're trying to create a mentorship program to help underrepresented people have screen time, right? We see this, like, I'm so happy. I mean, as an adult now, I didn't grow up with um, cartoons or shows or books where I saw myself reflected in it. And if I did, they were like highly stereotypical tropes, which I did not identify with at all. Um, but now it probably made it harder for you kids at school would pick up on that too. Right. And, and so right now with my daughter, who's eight, I remember like 
even before I had her, every time I saw a book that was, you know, had Asian or diversity, I would pick it up because I thought that's the only copy that there is. So I assembled a collection of books so that, you know, if and when I was blessed to have a child that I would have this. But now we see more and more. And I really appreciate that you're trying to create space in the film world. Right. Um, and I think we didn't actually really talk about your project, about what it's about, because it's also another piece, which is about creating space and telling a story that otherwise wouldn't be told. Do you want to speak to yeah. what is your film about? Please, because we had such an amazing experience on set, too. The film is, um, in a nutshell, about a 2S LGBTQ closeted teen girl who steals her family's um, hearse from their family funeral home and tries to take it to get her deceased father's ashes where they need to be. Okay. And unbeknownst to her, the alcoholic, bigoted caretaker has been passed out in the back seat of the hearse or sorry in the back bit of the hearse there and we find him right at the beginning of the road trip so it's definitely got levity to it there's a lot of funny themes etc going through but a lot of it was about acceptance and not just accepting yourself but celebrating who you are you know because we're all different in every single way and it's all what makes us different that at first we think makes us weird and oh awful and yeah. that's what no one will love about me but really it's turns out to usually be your best trait. So uh, it was very important to us to um, cast uh, members of the queer community mm -hmm. as the queer actors. Right. Because I know that a lot of actors have not felt comfortable coming out because they don't feel that they'll be supported playing straight roles. So we thought if this is, a, well, this is a gay role, it should be played by a person in the gay community because yeah. it only felt right. Our lead role anyway. And then as soon as we said that for our lead role, we were like, well, really, that should be for every role then. You know, every role that is a gay identifying role. And so that's what we had our casting director put on the breakdown is please only submit members of the 2S LGBTQ community. And we had the... It's only self-tapes still in the world of casting. And we asked people to tell us how they identified with the character after they'd done their audition. And the the responses that we got and the people just saying, thank you for making this film and thank you, like to see a character like Grace is so amazing. And to know that you actually want to cast a gay person is so cool. But it was still heartbreaking because we also got audition tapes where people would say, you know, I identify with her because I'm gay and I will never come out to my parents because I don't feel they would love me anymore. Like even now, like in 2023. Mm hmm. Wow. Break your heart. So, so it, it feels so good to make that movie and we wanted to have as much, you know, I, I personally said to even our extras casting people, I said, first of all, there can be no one at all who is not an ally to the community. Like there will be absolutely no, you know, we had some drag queens. My favorite day was the drag queen day. Uh, but we had drag queens performing and, and I just said there will be zero tolerance for anyone saying or doing anything disrespectful. So even to the background performers who come in, um, I don't know if that's entirely usually on the form or something, but I just said the background coordinator, like just make sure no one is, is not an ally. We're right. Just you know, with this film, we are all allies. So, and I think this is where, with your producer hat, where you actually can call the shots. There's power in that, that you create a space that people feel comfortable in. And I don't know what it's like in the acting world. Like we were just talking about, I was talking about how I've read about the need for intimacy coordinators oh. and consent. Because I don't like, you know, you think, oh, well, we're acting but you're still actually like physically with someone. And I was like, oh, do people get trained on not feeling or, you know what I mean? Like that, I'm saying that as a very naive person who's not in the acting world, but that's so important. Like clearly there's a need. Absolutely, because do people get trained? They do if they go to theater school. There is a, a part of your four-year degree that involves intimacy and how to ask for consent. Can I touch you here? Can I, you know, when doing rehearsals and everything. Uh -huh. 
But you, there's no guarantee. I didn't go to theater school, you know, so I was not personally taught that. I was like learned on set. And, um, and a lot of times I did get taken advantage of because I didn't know what my rights were and I didn't know what my boundaries could be. And I was so happy to have a job that I didn't want to say or do anything that would, you know, get me fired. So I certainly, I think uh, intimacy coordinators, 100%. I actually <laughs> go so far, um, and I'm not this, I know, make, make me stand out in a strange way, but I, I feel like there should be a bit of an intimacy coordinator sometimes for emotions. Like, our film goes through a huge uh, gamut of emotions, and our lead actor, Onwin, is amazing, Academy Award material. Uh, Just saying. <laughs> I will. I'll say it. She wouldn't. She's too good of a humble Canadian, but she's magnificent. But I checked in with her every single day and was like, if you ever need anyone to talk to, just let me know. I wasn't sure who I'd get, but I would have made sure I found someone because it's tough work. And we had signs pasted up everywhere that said, you know, here are the crisis lines if you're triggered. Because if you never know what's going to trigger somebody on set. And if I was making a comedy, I wouldn't have been that concerned about it unless there was some sort of strange material that might affect right, people. Okay. But in this, I was just really cognizant that people have to be very vulnerable in this movie and I want to make sure they feel protected. And you're so right. The power, it made me mad. No, it actually felt so good, the power, because I felt good with what I used it for. Yeah. You know, things like saying we're putting um, people's pronouns on the call sheet if they'd like to. Oh, sorry, the call sheet is uh, the daily, you know, day's work that yeah. everybody gets assigned every single day. So I said to, you know, we'll be putting people's pronouns on the call sheet if they'd like to share because we had some non-binary folks and uh, somebody said, oh, no, we don't have to go that far. And I said, oh, no, I'm sorry, you misunderstood. We are putting people's pronouns on the call sheet if they would like to share. Like you're redefining a standard that's like, yes. And, you know, I understand why the person said it. And I understand why some people say, oh, but, you know, that's how we came up and we were fine. And it was like, okay, yeah, we were treated very badly, very, very badly. And just because we said it was okay doesn't mean we should do it to other people. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe we're a little softer on people now, but that's probably because we were unnecessarily harsh before. I think that's really insightful, like in terms of just thinking about the mecha mechanics and the process that the small things of a call sheet and identity being a piece. And I think with in particular, the awareness because of the subject matter that you're talking about, even though people may talk a lot about it, it doesn't mean that it translates immediately into the way people do business, right? Like that doesn't like, oh no, we just write your name and that's it. But if someone is, you know, like one of the things is like, as a gay person, I always have to come out. Right. Whereas if you're a cis person, you, you, it's just assumed. Right. And it can be very exhausting. Or even as a, you know, person of color, you know, what does that look like to have to do the emotional labor of explaining why this is traumatizing or something like that? And well, it shouldn't always have to be on me, which is the power dynamic. Right. And so I think what you ask for as a baseline helps create a space that, oh, it can be different. Like we can redefine it. So even like when you talk about the work about, yes, the after me too, we got to do something about that because sexual workplace harassment is real, but sometimes a shame takes over and we don't talk about it. And I'm very lucky that my industry, because Harvey Weinstein was the, you know, the face of it all. So I am, I'm lucky now. And I will say, I say this to young women all the time and they don't believe me. And I'm really still sad about it, but I say it is much better now, like that you will be believed much more now. Mm. And if, if you don't feel that way, that's okay. You don't have to come forward, but I want you to know if you do, you will have all the 40s and 50s with all our rage behind us and we're here. Yeah. You know, because now we're just mad. We're not ashamed anymore. We know it wasn't ours to carry. Yeah. Now we're just mad. So, yeah. This, so that's, yeah, part of the reason why I was so 
it was the only, first of all, it was the only thing that I could do with my rage that was constructive and not destructive. Yeah. So I put my awareness there. And then as a mother of a daughter, you know, and yeah, by the I way, when you were mentioning uh, the books, uh, do you follow the Genus Davis organization? Organ, um, no, I've, re- I've heard about it. I just haven't followed it. Yet. Yes. Yes. She has excellent recommendations for a million things. And this is how she got started was because she realized that in kids' cartoons, she was watching TV with her child and she was like, there's like 75% men, yeah. my boys, they're all white. They're all this. And well, it's the lines, um, in Star Trek, um, like when we go back to the original series, you know, um, Captain Kirk, basically like he came and cut out a lot of the lines of the women. <laughs> right. And, and it's like, you know, that's something that's really important to recognize of, oh yeah, that's not necessary. Like who, who's the one, he's the star of the show. So, you know, there's a bit of power dynamic there of pulling one's weight and, you know, oh yeah, no, that's, that line's not necessary in cutting people out. Right. And so I think that, that, you know, it's never going to be quote unquote, like perfect, but we have to work towards better. And, you know, the pendulum swing is going to come and people don't like it. And I get it. And a lot of people that don't like it are my color. And people will say to me, oh, well, I hear you're losing a lot of jobs, you know, because everything is diverse. It has to be diversity, diversity, diversity. And I say, well, yeah, a lot in my category, they do want to cast diverse now. But I say that's because they're still casting the leads white. Yeah. So I said it's. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of swinging, but yeah. a it's not that much, right? Right. And b the white people are doing okay. <laughs> like we're you know more than anything for me as a female, that's where I want to see more representation. Yeah. Is um, I just you know watching with my watching her with my daughter saw the exact same thing as Gina Davis, and she even went so far as on one of her movies. The assistant director was giving all the extras things to do in the background. And he was giving all the boys things like airplanes and driving a motorized duck or something. And the girls, he was like, okay, here's a flower. Go sit over there and smell the flower and stuff. And Interesting. And she just watched for a bit. And she said with kindness and respect, she just said, how do you feel about giving some of the girls the toys too? And he just looked gobsmacked. And then he looked so embarrassed and he went, of course, that it, he was so embarrassed with his own, because, and it was just, that's how he was raised. It's and unconscious bias, right? Exactly. And sometimes we don't realize it because we internalize things until we realize, oh, right. And I think there is that piece about being kind of, hey, how about this? If you notice it, what are, like, I don't think people intentionally go out to try and do something awful. Right. Like, I think that people in general are like, you kind of emulate what you grew up with. Mm-hmm. And we grew up in a generation where, you know, it wasn't as aware of all the dynamics and differences and how we create space for inclusion. And lots of comments, you know, left, right, and center might not actually, if you heard it, it got normalized, but it wasn't appropriate. And I am so embarrassed about the things that were normalized for me, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and I participated in too. I mean, I'll say it not because I'm at all proud. I'm only owning this because I feel I have to, but, you know, laughing at jokes, et cetera, that were racially slanted that I, I did it. I, yeah. I don't like confrontation. I'm very much a Canadian girl that way, but finally, I guess it's the rage, my forties rage, but I just don't care as much about being disliked as I do about doing the right thing. And that's actually courageous. Oh, it feels good. (laughs) Right? But it takes a while, right? Like, I mean, to get there, because we're told this is the way you should be. And especially as a woman, oh, yes, you got to, like, and I I don't know, in an actor's world, as a female, you have to look this part. You have to be this. But then when you look at the guys, like, when I watch TV sitcoms, and in the beginning, everybody looks great. But as it goes on over seven years or long casting, the girls got skinnier. Dude's schlubbier. And they're just they're talking about, I'm like, what is happening with this inverse proportion? Like, and and I I have read like, you know, where contracts might stipulate you cannot cut your hair this long short or you have to be a certain weight. Like, I, I don't know. I've never seen contracts like that, but I just, you know, this is from like going on Google and seeing stuff, right? But that even like 
on the cover of magazines that, you know, the, the smear, like, you know, the gossip magazines where people will talk about, oh, look, this person gained X amount of weight or look at this celebrity without their makeup, like the reveal, like, and it's so scrutinizing. Yeah. I mean, I personally feel like it just goes back to everybody not being happy with themselves. So first of all, we put these people up on a huge pedestal of she's beautiful. And then, oh my God, it was all filters. And it's all filters, all filters. Even I modeled, that was how I got into acting. I was a model from when I was 16. Then I got in a bad car accident that my, that's where I got my scar from. So I quit for a long time, but the modeling industry I know very well. And it's just, you know, we were talking about the, the guys and girls version. Well, that's why TV commercials, if you notice, um, mm. it used to be, it would always be white guys, white girls. And the girl was like much more unattainable than the yeah. guy because it was usually starring the guy. It was always the guy's Ooh. commercial. So his accessory girlfriend would be gorgeous because then the guys who were looking at this guy going, Hey, he gets good looking girlfriend. So interesting. It's all like yeah. how you, it's so interesting how you even like process that, how we see things. Right. Um, you know, we were talking about, we both have daughters and how do we like, like, first of all, I actually think acting is great because it allows this creativity um, and the skills, right? Like, you know, and, and I think there, we were talking about play, like adult play, right? Can you like, can you talk a little bit about that, about how important that is? Well, yeah, it's uh people say to me that I'm really lucky to have a job where I can be creative. And I a hundred percent agree. Like that is why I do this. It's also why I deal with the, you know, financial instability and this, that, and the other. So it's not all roses, but I do. The creativity part is unmatched. Like I, I truly, the only thing I don't like about my job is that I don't get to do it as much as I would like. People don't pay me to do it as much as I would like, I should say. So that's my only complaint about it. Um, but When it comes to creativity, I mean, it doesn't mean you quit your job and you have to go become a broke artist, but you can create anywhere, you know, like I'm seeing how they wrap these, uh, poles. Yeah. It's just, it's magnificent how they've created this space here, whoever did this. And that is an art. And that's what I love as well about producing is you see everyone has their own art form. Yeah. The sound person is an artist of sound. And so when I started directing, I was like, Thank you. All of you, please just let me take all of your great ideas and try to make them mine. I love that. You know, um, I was talking to someone about leadership roles and being a woman and what it's like to try and fit into all these boxes. And sometimes with women, they're more tough on themselves because they're not perfect. And it sounds like in your role of when you are in a role of leadership of a production that you're like, you are an expert. Thank you. What is your advice? And, you know, like lean on the people around you and, and bring that together. And I wonder if that's also as an artist knowing this is what I'm really great at. This is what you are really great at. And I think there's something, I feel like a, a big part of who I am is because of being in arts and culture and not being like, it has to be this way. Like it's, it's always been thinking creatively and thinking, okay, if we can't do it this way, how about this, this, or this? Mm-hmm. And I love that. Right. Because I think that's kind of maybe my secret weapon of that survival. You're a producer. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just so great to hear you talk about that. And one of the things I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that we started was with our daughters, right? Um, as they explore and build their confidence, like drama class Indeed. in school. Um, I think it's so great because I've seen my own daughter um, kind of transform. That's so cool. You know, like, just like really build confidence. I'm like, oh, wow. Like, that's cool. Like, and just love it. And I mean, you're an actor. 
you're helping with the drama club and everything. She she came up to me the other day, by the way, too, and was we were talking uh, we were talking some character development stuff there. That was very very exciting. Oh, for interesting. Me. Yes, no, she totally totally blessed me. I will not embarrass her by saying anything, um, but she's wonderful. And I, yeah, I think the arts are a great thing to have yeah. to try to like confidence, like you said. And I wouldn't have had. And I certainly didn't have any of the confidence that I have now when I was starting out. When I was starting out, I know I was coming from a needier place of like, please love me, please love me. And right, I wanted right. the attention. And you're right. Now it's like, I just want to get the work done to the best of the ability. So therefore, if you're an expert at this, why would I try to pretend over here like I'm the expert on everything? Just listen to Frank. Frank will. Frank's I love got it. it. He's good. I love it, though. I think that's really wonderful because the other the other piece that you like of what you were just talking about listening to the experts and all those things is I, I wanted to talk to you as an artist, as an actor, as a producer and talk about how important drama arts, like all these skills, the sound, the, the expert in sound is important because I feel like if we look at schools or we look at when people do curriculum, Oh, it's art. <laughs> It's always secondary or it's like easy to chop that. Oh, it's just for fun, right? Like even like, you know, like that's not real. Like it, you won't get real skills, but I actually want to like explore that a little bit and challenge it a little bit because I really believe it is the arts which gives people the joy. Like why are people willing to pay X amount of dollars for any of these media companies, right? And why are they like for bigger budgets? There's a need for storytelling. There's a need to like get lost in the world. Like, um, I think Chris Hadfield just, the play just opened up at young people's theater. And, you know, he talks about like kids were asking him like, Oh, you know, like what made you want to become an astronaut? Like, and he talked about stories and how important that is. And so I just feel like drama, acting, theater, music, arts are so important. And I just really feel like, how do you explain that to people? Like, don't cut it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's always the first that people are willing to chop. And the saddest thing is, is that the people that are most impacted by that are the people that probably need it the most. Okay. You know, I've seen some kids at our drama um, program and we are from a very socioeconomically diverse school. You know, you've got kids in housing projects and you've got kids in two and a half million dollar homes. Yeah. So it's a big spread. Yeah. And there have been some kids that I know have been real challenges in the school and they've come to drama club and they're not miraculously, you know, yeah. but things are coming along. You know, and the principal's telling me that sometimes when those kids uh, are brought back into the principal's office, that they're mentioning drama club is something that's going on that's good. So, I mean, I think that makes me feel fantastic. And the teacher who's involved, uh, Ms. Santuccio, amazing, um, makes us feel so good. But I just think that that's who the arts really should be for, are the kids whose voices aren't necessarily being encouraged at home as much, you know, when that mm. child can get out. And that's why I think, too, that telling people of color and women's stories is so important. And that's why we want to do the mentorship, because if we can see more people of color, like if you normally look around a film set, sure, if you looked around four years ago, you'd maybe see three people of color. Okay. And they would... I'm certain all be men unless there was like one person, a lady in the hair and makeup department or something. Other than that, it would be all white men usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And females in like the pretty departments and stuff. But that was it typically. Mm. And so I can imagine that that would be very not intimidating. Yeah, totally. If you're a person of color space. walking in going, okay, I, okay. So I feel like the more people we can bring in who are of color and females, and then they can get up to be directors and they can start telling the stories. So children like your daughters yeah. see themselves like the wonderful talking Domi, Domi Chen. Thank you. Yeah. Domi Chen. Chi. 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 Yeah. I was just thinking about that, like turning red. Yeah, we just watched it again last night. It's like, I watched that and I was like, my heart, like seeing Toronto, like I, I followed her story after, like they, they did a little like behind the scenes thing. And what I loved about it was she was talking about, yeah, Disney started producing like 
um, more diverse movies, more diverse shows when the people in the decision-making room change from mostly older white men. And, and that, like what you talk about right now that, oh, well, four years ago, it was a pretty homogenous group. And, you know, and I don't know what leads to that, right? Because I don't know if people get into, how do people get into the field? I have a theory, which is that not very many people in certain communities are encouraged to be in the arts. Yes. So for a lot of people, it is a luxury to be in the arts. And most of the people who can afford luxuries are affluent white people. Yeah. So are affluent of any yeah. color, of course, yeah, 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 but um, affluent white people are the ones who are more likely to have, like, I'm, I come from a middle class basic background, but middle class basic is put me on so much more of a level to succeed yes. than anyone who's been any lower than that because... Yeah. I knew I wasn't going to starve at the very least. I didn't have a trust fund or anything, yeah. but I wasn't going to starve. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's all the roundabout way, but... Yeah, and it's it's so interesting in, in, in that regards with, you know, where do people start and how they're encouraged and, you know, what is... Where we're encouraged to go makes a big difference. And even seeing something that's viable, right? Like, I mean, with Turning Red, like... Here is basically her her love love story to Toronto, and it's so affirming in so many ways. And I'm sure her parents were like, "Why do you keep drawing? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, where's that going to get you?" But it's it's got it's gotten somewhere. I mean, Simu I think Lou's mom was not a big fan of his acting. Yeah. He was an accountant first, or a, a banker, or, or something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and we've got such great stories, right? Like, even we were talking earlier about Kim's convenience. Right. And and how that kind of opened up um, visibility. And I, I mean, I actually really love a lot of what CBC is trying to do and getting more diverse stories. Have you seen Sort Of? Yeah. My, I'm obsessed with Sort Of. Everyone should yeah, watch Sort Of. Totally. I literally got CBC Gem only so I could watch it without commercials. Yes. Amazing show. Yeah, I Amazing. totally agree. Really. Um, and not just like surface but really heartwarming and I just, I and love it's not it too. woke for the sake of woke. It's super woke. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. super woke, but it's not just for the sake of it adds to the comedy. Yeah. It's just, it's brilliant. I think I, I just feel like who's in like, and when I watch these shows um, come forth, I'm like, who was it that opened that opportunity? Who was it that said like, you know, I don't know how decisions are made, but someone had to say green light go. Okay. We'll take a risk. We'll take a chance. But somebody first, and I would say it would be the star, Bilal Bey. I hope I'm getting their name right. Um, But it would have to be them that that had the confidence to go and pitch this to CBC or however many people they pitched it to before, you know, and good on CBC for saying yes and making this um, show because it's not only hilarious, but heartwarming and and about family and the intergenerational dynamics and the cultural challenges. I know. I I totally love it. I didn't actually know about it until the second season. (laughs) And so I was like, what? And fortunately then I could like, like stream it, like just, one weekend, like, I was like, just like watching it. I was so glad to get COVID for that reason. (laughs) I had COVID and I was like, I'll watch whatever. I got time. Oh, I love it. I think that's so, you know, like it's what, what draws us and this will shape and change and impact the people who are watching it. And so we have a whole entire generation of folks who didn't grow up. Like we're similar ages with the same things. Right. Mm -hmm. And as we, you know, take, the lessons that we've learned or the experiences that we've had and say, how can we change it? So someone else doesn't have to experience that. And also listen to the younger people too, when they're telling us, Mm. you know, like kids coming out with non-binary wanting to use they, them pronouns or change their pronouns and stuff like that. Even if they go back to the original pronouns, it doesn't hurt anyone. Like, you know, to me, that's where I can, you know, I've had conversations with people my age. Well, that's just silly. I don't understand that there's only two. Gen- I get it. I don't necessarily understand it either. Yeah. But it doesn't affect me if that person wants to use whatever pronouns or do. Mm-hmm. Doesn't bother me. And as someone who respects that person, 
I'm just going to do what they've kindly asked of me. Yeah. See them who they'd like to be. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, that's wonderful, which is why I think we get along really well. But I think that not, you know how you said like when people were doing their casts, casting and they talked about it, like that there are people who are not in those communities where they have that. You're support. so right. You're so right. Yeah. It, yeah. But we need advocates. We need allies to like, you know, um, you have created a story which would not necessarily be told. Right. And, and you've created that space. Like I, I just, in all the works in your life, right. The choices that you make, it's really clear that you always try to create space where you can, even if it's not your, like, I don't know, but let's do it. Right. Or let's bring someone who can educate me and create that space. And we need more people like you. Oh, that's nice of you to say. I don't know if they we need them to all like me, but injustice has always been my trigger. Yeah. Like that's always been what really gets me is injustice. So yeah, yeah if I can be doing anything to help a little bit and yeah, then it feels good. For sure. So as as one of the founders of the After Me Too movement, can you explain so it's a website, aftermetoo.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um who would go there and and what would they get? Just um, let's well, talk about that. Yeah. Um, Freya Ravensbergen, who <laughs> along with Mia is one of the uh, the main founders. I call myself a volunteer founder. Yeah. Um, just part of the, the herd of warrior women that got that done. And I was so proud. Um, and, you know, I really feel this is off topic for a sec, but I really feel that when women get together in those capacities, such amazing things can happen. And you, I'd heard the speeches before about that, but I'd never been in the presence of a lot of women all fired up and ready to do whatever it yeah. took. Yeah. And it was empowering. I was like, I feel like this is like a some kind of a superpower coven or something. It felt wonderful just yeah. to be, you know, fighting together yeah. for something. Yeah. So sorry, I didn't even ask your question. No, but I mean, as we go on that topic, there is a power when people come together, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the beauty of, uh, you know, connection and people communicating with each other and and telling their truth. And saying, you know what? You're not alone. And I think when people feel that empowerment and then there's like, okay, let's do something. So there's something really great. But I guess, so so that, so that was an awesome offside. But, <laughs> so we'll, we'll go back to the question. So the aftermetoo.com, who would go there? Who, who would go, yes. go there? Oh, so uh, anyone who's experiencing <laughs> any sort of workplace harassment, uh, we have a lot of uh, resources there for anyone who has been assaulted, you know, any woman who is in crisis. Mm. Um, there's also another great organization that I'd like to take just two seconds yeah, that is course. not mine, but uh, Micah Kalish has an organization called the Pears Foundation. How do you that- spell that? Pairs, P-E-A-R-S. Okay. And that's out of uh, the University of Toronto. Just made me think because Micah is someone who has studied underneath me when I was an acting teacher and her activism has far surpassed mine. She is a hey, magnificent young woman. that, right? I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm so proud of her. But yes, she's started this at U of T because of course they are experiencing the same kind of harassment and violence there, but in a student population mm. with a lot of the times professors being the predators. So there's a huge problem there. So I give my two seconds there too. That's really important because I think wherever there's a power imbalance, situations come up and... And a lot of these professors are protected by tenure and protected by the university. There's, yeah, Yeah. I I can't speak um, to the legalese of it, but Micah can, and she's wonderful. But yeah, she's part, this is part of those, it's a resource for any woman or any person who is experiencing sexual violence. So they could go there and find resources. And we're trying to get people, you know, matched up with counseling and stuff like that as well. I know that we're working with the Barbara Scheffler Clinic and we did get a grant from the Canadian Women's Fund as well. That's amazing. And the Barbara Schleifer Clinic is really important. Um, it's, it's, it's a clinic that helps, um, women, you know, who are going to, I heard they're losing uh, funding too. Yeah. And, and we need to advocate for more. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I know, um, I remember meeting the former CEO and, you know, she was just, 
outside of the box thinker, let's get it done. But the reality is a lot of these supports that are so necessary are often um, their fun. The funding that they get is really what helps keep them alive. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think a lot of lawyers will volunteer on the on to help. And it's just so important. Yeah. I mean, anybody who who's been traumatized in any way, shape or form is not going to be the best human being that they can be and a person in, who can contribute to society if yeah. they can't get any sort of healing. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I guess the call to action here really is how do we support those who have been traumatized and have experienced um, sexual violence in the workplace, sexual violence in the academic setting? I mean, there's so many arenas where this is so helpful. Um, you the know, biggest thing I think that people can do is believe the person you know, I believe women and that's been difficult for me sometimes. Uh, I know there are stories where women have taken advantage of situations. I, people, you know, hurt people, hurt people was a quote that really resonated me because Asia Argento, who was one of Harvey Weinstein's victims, she went on to victimize a young boy, I believe mm. it was, in mm. Italy. Um, yeah. And that was when the quote was told to me, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you have to sort of nip that, the trauma, or it does perpetuate itself. Oh, like on an, on an academic level, Paulo Ferrari um, talks about pedagogy of the oppressed, that when the oppressed, people who were oppressed, when they come out of that oppression, will oppress others because that's what they knew. Exactly. So hurt people, hurt people makes a lot of sense. It might not be intentional. It's what you know. Yeah. You know, um, you had a really great quote. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to share that, which is, who are you to not be magnificent? Yeah, that's by a man named Larry Moss, who is an acting teacher. And I've worked with Larry for over, wow. 20 years, maybe. Your baby. Yeah. He was so transformative to me. He was just someone, the first person who saw me, warts and all, and was like, kid, you don't have to be perfect to be lovable, you know, because you're never going to get there to be perfect. So you better figure out a way to, to know you're lovable. Otherwise, yeah. it's going to be a hard road for you. And Larry's quote goes back to, you know... And I think it's a really Canadian thing that people say, you know, we're so humble and that's great, but we also should celebrate our successes and it's aim true. for the freaking stars. Like, yeah. shouldn't it be embarrassing to say, oh, I'd like to get an Academy Award one day. I want a damn award. I, I love it. Academy Award. That'd be amazing. And why shouldn't it. we get it? You know, who are you not to be magnificent? Yeah, I love that. And that's something that, I mean, everybody should be shouting that out. Why not? Why am I not magnificent? Right? I am magnificent. We came with the guns. <laughs> you know? I, I thought of another one this morning, too, which I don't know if it's an actual quote, but I realize it's something that I need to apply to myself, is that your creative... Oh, sorry, your critic is not your creativity. Mm, I like that. Because creativity goes often hand in hand with critique. You know, when we start to be creative and we make something, often another, our first thought is, this is so cool. I can't believe I made it. The second is, no, it probably sucks. I'm sure it's not as good. Oh, yeah. I, I know. It's just embarrassing. I just did this on a, no, no, no. I'll never tell anybody about it. It's silly. Yeah. So I think that's the critic coming in. But your creativity itself is like, who are you not to be magnificent? It's just your creativity is already magnificent. It's only the critic that's going to tell you something different. Yeah. And I think it's always, you know, like, I think I, I remember when I did sales in an art store and the general manager said, you know, if there's one person has a negative experience, they will tell 10 people. And to undo that, like, you have to multiply that by here, like a hundred times, you know, like that you're okay. Like, so, you know, one person could say one thing bad, but then it'll take 10 people to say, good things. And you'll still remember the bad things. And you'll just remember that one thing that one person said, yep. right? And I think that reality of how aff affirmation, you can't just say it once because people are like, mm, no, 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 that's not, that's not real. Like, mm, thanks. You're just being, oh, you don't really mean it. But we do that. Like, I think we all do that where, you know, I mean, I'm sure that there are people who are like, oh yes, I'm awesome. Right. Great. Own it, love it, be that way. But I think when we can recognize that let's have an openness to be kind to ourselves and, and to love ourselves and to recognize that, no, I am cool. Like, but I think it's easier to 
to be negative, right? So much easier because that's what we get confronted with a lot of the time. I I love that our kids are still at the age where I can still see that nothing's really got their spark yet. You know, it hasn't been taken away. You could still see it. That they have that spark. They still have that I'm awesome thing. And unfortunately, as you get older, maybe they won't. Maybe this is something that in our wokeness, it's changing. Yeah. But, you know, we usually sort of lose it over time. It gets a little bit stamped out because other people tell us other things that are unkind. And so we start believing them. Well, I actually, there was a friend of mine and I was reading something she had posted on social media and she's like, oh, I wish it was, I was still my nine-year-old self where I believed everything could be awesome. But then what happened, right? And, And I think that is beautiful, like where you could be anything. And then what happens along the way? And as a parent, I want my child to feel loved, to feel supported. And, and then sometimes I worry like, Oh, I don't want to set them up for like the disappointments in life, but you know, it's what can you do? You know what I mean? Like it, like they're going to face disappointments. My therapist one time said, I said, uh, I can't remember what the George's big problem was that she was upset about. My therapist said, isn't that great? (laughs) I said, what's so great about that? She's like, well, this is a problem that for her is a big deal right now. And you can help her through that. So she'll get some experience making good decisions and, you know, um, having to deal with a problem that she sort of feels on her own. So it's great that you can have all these little and provided that your child grows up in a safe home and everything. Thank God we've been able to have that, that, you know, so far we can do that. But again, that's a child coming from, to me, such a place of extreme privilege. I know when we went on virtual school, you saw the difference in what people's reality is. And, you know, so I know my kid is starting off from a huge position of privilege. We're not wealthy, this, that, and the other. But, I mean, just the home that she comes from not being... Well, you have the love and support, right? It's not... I came from a humble immigrant family that their love and their support helped me soar, really. Yeah. Right? And it's not always the do- the dollars and cents help, but it's not everything. It's not the be-all and end-all, right? And the like having parents who will listen, having someone who, hey, what do you think? How are you feeling? Checking in. Is, yeah. It's those little things, right? I agree. Yeah. No. Um, Jen, like... For closing thoughts, anything you want to end with? Oh my gosh, I think I got it all out there. <laughs> my critic, your critic is not your creativity. I thought that was very inspired. This it morning. is. It is very inspiring. But no, I think, uh, thank you. It's so nice to communicate like this in an, like an open and real way. Yeah. I realized that through the pandemic that um, small talk is not for me. Yeah. I'm not good at just, hi, how are you? And uh, but this is this I can this I really enjoy. No, really I connecting with people oh, and for truly sure. communicating. I mean, listen, I remember meeting you when I something had happened, and I was like, oh, I can't. I I was doing the um, the winter clothing drive for New Circle. That's right. That's right. Oh, you hurt yourself or something? Yeah, and you were like such a gem, and we didn't even actually know each other. Like, oh, I'll help and go pick up clothes wherever you want. And I was like, thank you so much. Like, I put it out to the universe, and you know. Jen it was getting forward. It was like four blocks. I, I know, but, but it was so helpful. Oh, I think I had my appendix out. And I just remember feeling so fortunate and so grateful to have that. And so I just want to say thank you, right? Because oh, you're welcome. Community is everything. And community. you remind me of that on a daily basis. Thank so you. Thank you. Well, we, we make it. I love where we live, right? I do too. <laughs> I can't believe in a huge, big city like Toronto. I grew up in a small town in BC. Yeah. I thought Toronto was a big, scary city. And yet we yeah. find real community living in this metropolis in our tiny little verb of it. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time. And I'm so excited for, you know, when your film comes out of post-production and we'll see it on the big screen. Hopefully. Yeah. We'd love to premiere it at TIFF this year. So, uh, 2023 this time. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. Grace. 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 What's in that box? It's your father's ashes. He died last week. Liza, I cherish our time together at the palace. Your dearest, T. I'll hope you get out of here again, Dad.
If you're gonna steal a car, you ought to at least know how to drive one. God damn. Red, just drive! I'm gonna find you, Grace! You're done! You're done! I'm taking this trip to spread my dad's ashes. Your dad was friends with Liza Minnelli? That's what you took away from everything I just said. Well, yeah, because it's nuts. You little shark. Hey, I gave him that. No! Do you have any decency? Uh, no. It's a drag bar. Yeah. Please. The rainbow does not belong to the LGBTQ community. It belongs to God. Oh.